Welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Unfair Podcast, a weekly discussion on key trends in investment and economic policy from some of the world's leading commentators. I'm Emma McGarthy, head of the Onfis Sustainable Policy Institute, and today we'll be discussing the work the UN Environment Programme is doing to support the financial sector with the increasing disclosure and reporting requirements that we're seeing, transition planning, impact investment, as well as the rising topic of nature and biodiversity loss as well. Um, so I'm delighted to be joined today by Eric Usher, who heads the UN Environment Programme Finance Initiative, so, Eric, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you. My pleasure, Emma. Happy to be with you. Fantastic. Thanks so much. So let's dive into the questions. I mentioned that we're going to be looking at uh, disclosure frameworks today. So obviously, 2022 has seen a huge development in disclosure reporting and regulatory requirements for the financial sector. As it involves, and obviously we're, you know, a, a big topic that we're exploring at OnFIF and that we're seeing is that there needs to be this harmonization. Um, and there's a big discussion about interoperability of standards. And it's evident with the development of the ISSB that there is movement towards this. But from your perspective and what, what work is the UN doing with this and, and how can jurisdictions kind of agree on a common set of rules and a level playing field? What needs to happen for, for that to take place? Okay, I mean, I, th- I think you're exactly right. This is a very critical issue, I think, for this year and for the coming years. Data is and, and will be key. And certainly the, the commonality of rules and a level playing field are key concerns. Uh, and this applies not only at the regulatory and standards level, I think it is also very much in, we need a broader set of soft law or norms that that, that speak the same language. And, uh, and we have to acknowledge UNIPFI, we've been around for a long time. We had a 30-year anniversary last year. And uh, uh, this was kind of lonely work for many years, but uh, the reality is it's become a very busy space, I think, for, for very good reasons. And we're seeing so much positive development today. But the reality is it's not perfect and interoperability or comparability, uh, we, we, we need to get the language right and we're not quite there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned data uh, as, as a key source to, to making this happen. Could you elaborate a little bit on, on this and how we can kind of develop that data, get that kind of common data set to, to help drive this interoperability and, and these common frameworks? Yeah, I mean, I think the first step to getting towards a level playing field in terms of how we communicate um, information data is agreeing on um, common definitions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we need to speak a common language and this this applies many different levels. If we think about core concepts, for example, if we're talking you know, about the notion of impact, what is impact? What's impact management? What is performance? How do we measure it? It's also, you know, we need to clarify sustainability issues and topics themselves. You know, we use so many terms, for example, let's say uh, employment, jobs, livelihoods, decent jobs, labor. You know, what do all these terms mean? How do they relate? And critically also, if you think about sectors and industries and activities, you know, we have a common industry classification system within the UN called the ISIC system. But every jurisdiction has sliced and diced sectors differently. And within every jurisdiction, each bank, for example, has further adapted these nomenclatures. There's also separate classifications used by investors. So, you know, getting to a common language is a priority, including for the work that we're doing. 
Since last year, uh, Romina Borini from the OECD and myself, we co-chair the Impact Management Platform, which is a collaboration between um, the leading providers of public good standards and guidance for managing sustainability impacts. Um, now, this includes initiatives uh, focused on both the corporate and the financial sector, as, as well as the main disclosure initiatives, uh, GRI, CDP, uh, ISSB, which is an observer, um, and also the, the benchmarking efforts, such, such as the World Benchmarking, uh, benchmarking Alliance, the WBA. Through this, this platform, you know, we're trying to work to clarify the meaning and practice of impact management. So to work towards the interoperability that you mentioned too, and sort of, but also to have to dialogue where appropriate with the policymakers. So the, the wider notion is how do we get the common languages that then can lead to the, the, the locking in of the, the appropriate types of data harmonization and, and, and standards. Uh, lots of moving parts, but largely I would say there are promising developments headed in the right direction. Uh, you mentioned the ISSB, a very important development, but a lot of work to, get, to be done to get it right. Yeah, so an obvious question there is, is what work do you think needs to, to be done going forward from this? But it sounds like a fantastic initiative, brilliant to have all of these different elements coming together. Um, what work do you think now needs to be done in terms of kind of driving that, that driving that harmonization and, and finding that kind of common language between all these different uh, different frameworks and things that the financial sector are having to, to follow and, and think about now when they're disclosed and then when they report? I mean, I think there are multiple steps and there are, there are multiple sandboxes right now where we need periods of innovation and then we need periods of clarification and harmonization and as you break down some of the challenges i think we have to acknowledge that not everything will happen at once and so the issb incredibly important to to mainstream some of these no notions across uh, corporate practice and, and reporting but there are some tricky issues including around the notions of materiality where it will probably go at different speeds. We will not have a one um, solution that will be appropriate in our, all jurisdictions from day one. So to some extent, we, we need to acknowledge that there will be those who maybe take more of a leading approach, uh, whereas those who might be a little bit more conservative. And maybe that's okay. And as once again, this is not a one-size-fits-all process. We're talking about a global set of jurisdictions, a global makeup of contextual economies and business activities. So it's hard to come up with something which is very narrowly defined, but we do need a common sense of direction. And I think this is what we're starting to see. I think the expectation is ISSB will be the place over time where most of this gets lodged, but how lodging occurs, there will be a number of many actors involved and there needs to be everybody in one way or another who are at the table who are sort of showing best practice, but then also saying, okay, how do we make best practice interoperable with mainstream practice? And how does one positively raise ambition of the other? And I, I think if we set the, the very difficult economic headwinds that we have seeing in 2023 aside, the bigger picture is looking pretty good. Now, the reality is there's going to be challenges this year. And, and some would say, you know, um, inflation, higher cost of capital, uh, war in Europe. Is this going to slow down the, the sustainability transition? I don't believe it will. We're not hearing many who are saying, let's throw it under the bus and put it aside because we have other priorities. But we do have to realize that there are decisions that need to be taken and that things will move faster in certain dimensions than others. And that will apply also to this space. 
Yeah, yeah. I think some would also argue that this is maybe a, an opportune moment to spur the transition and to put more investment in, especially if you're looking at the energy crisis. One of the reasons this has potentially happened is because there hasn't been enough investment in renewable energy whilst there's been divestment in fossil fuels, right? So a way to tackle that is to drive that investment. But I think some of the things you just said there led me on to my next question, which is kind of looking more at emerging markets. And when we're looking at standards, obviously, we're we're talking about the need for a common language, talking about a need for interoperability. This is all true, but there are also arguments for allowing innovation, especially in emerging markets where there are different kind of challenges. So how can we factor this, this in? What are the kind of key challenges that you think the emerging markets are facing as we're driving these standards, as we're expecting this transition to take place? And, and how can this kind of be be represented for the uh, for the emerging market countries involved? Yeah, I mean, I, I think as, as I already mentioned, and you've inferred, you know, common definitions and common approaches, they do not mean a one size fits all approach, you know, and so it provides the basis to a common and consensual understanding of, of where differences exist between sectors, between types of organizations, between countries. But for example, a European company and a, an Egyptian company, that's what I say, they will not focus in the same way on climate mitigation and climate adaptation, respectively. They have different drivers, they have different priorities. And, you know, a large corporation and, and an SME, they also cannot be expected to be equally sophisticated in terms of the scale of their, their actions and the scale of their reporting. So we do need, you know, common languages, but this just implies that topics are going to get prioritized properly and strategies and methodologies can start to get aligned. Uh, but this has to be relevant to the level of capacity or focus or strategy of those uh, who have to implement them. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And obviously, so apart from the the changing regulatory environment that we're seeing um, and the kind of this need for comparability um, and interoperability, another topic that we're looking at a lot is kind of drive towards transition planning. And we're seeing in the UK, there's a transition planning task force to, to kind of help this. This is definitely something that's kind of rising on the agenda. So why are credible uh, transition plans crucial for accelerating action on climate preventing greenwashing and and from your perspective what are you seeing with this and, and what do you think a good transition plan should look like yeah i mean i think this is one of the most important um, developments out of cop 26 in glasgow was around the uk announcement initially on on transition planning and other countries have followed suit you know we, we've gone through a number of years of very important developments on taxonomies and those are still playing out including um in europe and elsewhere but the reality is, you know, taxonomy is the question is for what purpose? And transition planning is something that's more holistic, where you will need taxonomies. Uh, you will need other things that help you make it real. But it's only with a plan that shows how emissions will be reduced with specified technologies and how that will be funded with details of capital expenditure only with that information can anyone have confidence that the necessary decarbonization is going to happen. You know, otherwise pledges, targets and goals, they're basically wishful thinking. This has to happen right across the supply or the value chain, you know, in the real economy. And this pathway is going to be different for every sector. And it also needs to happen across the financial chain of providers of capital, you know, including the lenders, the investors, the insurers, the savers. You know, otherwise, you know, we get these pockets of green, which are, are good, they're necessary, but they're not sufficient if there remains, you know, significant polluting activities at scale. So all CapEx need to consider the long-term implications of locking in emissions for the life of the asset or the plant. 
now that's being financed. And without a transition plan, essentially, it's not possible to get this big picture of, of how the business needs to change. And so we believe um, this is the most important. Uh, we talk about data. We talk about the role of the ISSB. Uh, we talk about the, the many other actions that are needed in the climate space. The transition plan is what pulls it all together. Um, so it's an area that we are putting a lot of importance on. And this links as well very much to the, the net zero alliances that, that are making progress, um, but where there's much more that also needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and maybe we can go on to the uh, alliances in a moment. But from your point of view, how do you think the financial sector should be working with these other kind of aspects? So looking at the real economy and in terms of kind of developing a transition plan and then working with the supply chain and, and working with kind of where, where the money's being directed. How do you think the financial sector should be should be doing that? And, and what do you think that should kind of should look like? Should there be investment should there be kind of ownership yeah no no good question i mean the reality is and what we can talk we can go into a bit more detail on the, the net zero alliances but you know once you set a target the reality is implementing on that target you can't do much at a at a higher level you need to to land it within different sectors and within different geographies and therefore, uh, let's say if you set a power sector target globally, you then have to say, okay, in which markets are we operating? And what is the ability for that industry to get to zero? What is that going to, that transition going to look like? Mm-hmm. So transition planning really needs to be done at the sectoral and jurisdictional level. Now, there are some different models we've seen, for instance, in Japan, where you have national efforts to develop sectoral transition plans. Uh, we also, uh, within the alliances, we're seeing that they're working together to come up with banks, uh, bank-led or investor-led transition plans for certain industries, like cement, steel, power, transport, et cetera. And essentially, once you have a plan, then that gives you something that you can benchmark your investee companies or your, your client companies against. And it's a, it provides you the ability to then look at who's the leaders, who are the laggards, what is the impact on, on credit risk, what is the impact on need for capital. So essentially, it gives you really the plan, which is the strategy of how you're going to operate in that sector. So it can come from outsiders. It can come from the industry associations within the real economy sectors, but then it needs to be means tested by those who are going to use it. So we believe it makes the most sense that the opportunity to bring together the providers of capital with the real economy sectors to work and say, what are credible plans? What is useful to essentially map out how this industry is going to change? And then we, as providers of capital, can then work with the actors to make sure that they are uh, moving in that direction and to enable them to move in that direction. And of course, one of the underlying realities and opportunities is there are very few climate actions that aren't capital intensive. Most, let's take the power sector, most low carbon power is much more capital intensive than business as usual power options, fossil fuel driven options. So it's going to require much more capital input, much more involvement of the financial sector than is currently the case. So it's an opportunity, but we need to realize, of course, that you can only throw capital at sectors, at industries, at actors, when you understand um, how you will challenge and what are you looking for in terms of results. 
transition plans essentially is the opportunity to to provide that benchmarking tool. Right. And do you see that as a way of helping to scale up capital for this as well? And do you have any other thoughts in terms of how this capital and, and how this kind of asset allocation can be scaled towards the, the cleaner, the, the renewable kind of energy and, and other sources and materials as well? Absolutely. And, and I mean, there are so many examples you can take, but you know, let's take electric vehicles in Germany. We've just seen some numbers that have shown, you know, the, how the home of the internal combustion engine, Germany has um, done a huge about face towards electric vehicles in, in, you know, a couple of years time, that industry has totally changed. And so value creation has been enormous, as has value destruction. So any investor or lender operating that market realizes that they need a plan to understand how that industry is changing and where they should be putting their capital. So the this is going to be one of the most important uh, capital allocation tools going forward. And that's, that, that's automotive, power sector we mentioned, steel, cement, building construction, the food system. You know, there's not actually any sector of the economy that is not affected. And so uh, certainly um, this will be critical. This will be central. And this provides essentially the resources that these financial actors can can use um, in terms of the knowledge to actually be able to, to I would say, look forward in, in a credible way. Otherwise, it's it's going to be we're blind. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And that, that is super helpful, I think. So we, we mentioned the various alliances that the UNEP is, is working with, such as the Net Zero Banking Alliance. Many members are kind of setting their own targets to reach decarbonisation. So uh, could you talk me through kind of how you're working with these alliances, how this is progressing, and kind of how uh, the financial sector is making credible net zero pledges and, and a realistic roadmap to kind of meet these these pledges as well? Yeah. So uh, UNIPFI, uh, we are convening today three of the GFANS alliances. This started in 2019, where along with PRI, we convened the first Net Zero Alliance, which was the Asset Owner Alliance, which now has been around for almost four years and in many ways is leading in terms of the, the process, uh, the structure they put in place. Uh, we then have this significant scaling up led by Mark Carney of establishing GFANS. And we're very happy today to be leading the asset owners, the banks, and the insurance alliances. Each one of them has their own structure, governance, and, and set of target and protocol for how they deliver on their targets. But there are commonalities. All of them, you know, 2050 is the easy part, but the central thing, and this applies to all the GFANS alliances, is about near-term, interim targets. So for the Asset Owner Alliance, they have 2025 targets because they were the first out of the blocks. Most of the others, including the ones we work on, are focused on 2030. So they have to, um, as a first step, they, they're, they're setting a commitment towards 2050, towards net zero, but more importantly, in terms of focusing on the interim setting targets based on science-based scenarios and then reporting annually and taking various steps in terms of delivering on those targets. The Asset Owner Alliance um, has issued a series of what they call their target setting protocol. They will shortly release the, the version three of that protocol. So every year it updates and it covers more asset classes as the more methodologies get developed. And today it does cover the plurality to the largest part 
of their exposures, but there are still more to go. But for today, they have, um, it's about $11 trillion in assets. So depending what you're measuring against, you know, it's between five and 20% of the industry, depending how you measure it. So it's, it's, it's a lot, but it's definitely not all. And we, out of that um, 10, 11 trillion, a little over 7 trillion has been set under these targets, which means about 70% of their portfolios are now, they've set specific targets by 2025 for reductions. And the reductions are science aligned. So IPCC, IEA, more or less we know um, we're talking about roughly 20 to 30% reductions by 2025 if you're going to be on the, the transition, if you're going to be within a scenario to get to net zero in time. The Net Zero Banking Alliance at uh, COP27 issued their first set of targets. So 62 banks. Today, the, the overall alliance, it represents 40% of global banking assets. So it's many of the larger banks from around the world. Uh, 62 of them, which based on when they signed up, it's the ones that have to first release their targets. They've issued their targets. And once again, they're science aligned for 2030. And so to give you an example, in the power sector, the average reductions they're aiming for is 54% reductions by 2030. So cutting emissions in half in the power sector in seven years time, targets being set in areas of real estate and transport and agriculture and other areas. It's up for the individual signatories to, to set their own targets, but they are required to be within these science-based scenarios. But I think the main message is targets are science aligned, which basically means they're ambitious. I mean, frankly, they're more ambitious than many governments are setting today. But now the question in 2023 really is about delivery. Right. And this comes back to what we talked about with trans the need for transition plans, the need for the relationship between providers of capital and, and the real economy sectors. And essentially, because many of these actors are there, these are not niche players. They are financiers for the, for the whole economy. It's really about how do you get the whole economy to transition? Only if that is achieved, will they be successful? And that begs the question of, well, many steps. One is how do you use the capital? The other is obviously the enabling environment, the policy framework. And so part of the work does focus on how do we also you know, put pressure or work with policymakers in terms of getting them to be putting in place the right sort of policy signals. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So we, we've talked a lot today, or we've, we've mentioned quite a few times impacts, and there's an increasing kind of drive and referencing to impact investments. So what is your outlook for, for how this looks? I think probably ties into what you were just saying in terms of we can drive the capital, but actually the real economy probably, you know, there needs to be a bit of a shift there. But what is your outlook for kind of how impact investment is going and, and, and how can we guide financial institutions as they look to kind of do these investments, they drive more impact investment? Um, yeah, what's your, what's your perspective there? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's quite important to distinguish between impact investing and impact management across the financial sector and its, its, you know, its business activities, its products, its services. So, you know, while the former is very specific asset class concerning an ultimately fairly small part of economic activity, small but you know important in certain ways, but it is some would say more niche. The latter, the notion of impact management, you know, enables us to really drive positive impact and reduce negative impact across the economy. So our focus is deliberately on the latter, you know, bearing in mind, you know, the huge shifts and transitions that we need to see across the mainstream economy. So, you know, we of course 
you know, we certainly welcome the efforts to develop impact investments as well. These are niche, although they were, are very important to, if you think in a, in a VC mentality about getting sectors started in terms of the change, um, integrating change large scale will be about impact management. You know, and where I, I mentioned earlier, the impact management platform and and the relationship with you know to ISSB, the the notion, the net zero um, alliances are one of the you know big large scale versions of impact management. Once again, it's it includes investments in you know very green activities, but it also includes divestment from non green. And as Mark Carney would mention. It's, it's not about the very green and the very ungreen. It's about everything in between, the 50 shades of green. And uh, with the right sort of tools, we can start to manage portfolios to go in an impact dimension in the right, you know, in a positive impact uh, direction. That's the type of focus that we're, we're mainly looking at. And I think we see a lot of promise, but I think we have to also understand the more mainstream you go, the more um, you need to be making use of mainstream parts of the system and it has to get on board. And it's, it's not only the, the main financial actors, it's also all the enablers, you know, the, the auditors, the, the lawyers, you know, every part of the financial system has to be speaking the right sort of language and having the right sort of understanding. It can be a slippery concept. And so we really need to nail down. We need to get it clear. And then, then we need leadership to happen or as part of that leadership has happened and then you'll get the mainstream following suit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the uh, the Fifty Shades of Green <laughs> reference. Very, very catchy. Good way of putting it. Um, and you mentioned portfolios. So when, when looking at this, what portfolio impact analysis tools uh, should the financial sector be utilising to kind of better understand their performance with this, uh, determine their priorities, um, and then also as an overall kind of understand their, their general outputs and kind of, you know, where, where is this going? Is it green? Is it brown? Like, is it somewhere in between? Like, where, where is our investment? I think uh, as an example, Unipify, um, our biggest membership is with uh, banking and, and we've developed an impact protocol to guide banks through the steps of impact analysis and management, you know, all the way from impact identification to practice and of course, uh, you know, performance assessment to target setting, to setting up these action plans and, and monitoring We've also developed a number of impact management resources to support banks along the way, including things like impact mappings that you know map different sectors, positive negative impact associations. So trying to understand the notion of direction of travel. You know, it's not so much about something is whether it's green or not, it's it's the more challenging question of greening. You know, what is uh, we can work with an industry to help in, create improvement. How can you measure that in a way that makes it financeable, that makes it credible? These are just some of the examples. Uh, I managed the. I mentioned the impact management platform. There are a lot more organizations and resources that are managed there. Mentioned there as well. Yeah, no, brilliant. Uh, this has all been super, super insightful, and I think our listeners will, will really appreciate this kind of overview as, as well. Um, so as my kind of final question or a final point that we can touch upon, um, as well as everything we discussed today, as well as the multitude of disclosure reporting frameworks, we're also starting to look much more at nature loss, which is obviously really fantastic. And that's really rising on the agenda. We saw COP15 and also the, the TNFD or the Task Force on Nature Related Financial Disclosures is releasing a lot of things now. There's, there's a, a rising expectation to consider this as well. So how is UNFFI supporting this work? 
You've obviously also announced the development of a global guidance on blue bonds. So can you talk me through uh, that guidance and, and can you talk me through kind of, you know, how you're supporting this, this rising look at kind of nature loss and, and you know, financial sector workiness? Great. Well, we were very pleased to be one of the four co-founding organizations of the TNFD. And we've been very pleased to see the, the you know, the uptake and progress that it's made. And um, our, our current role today is on the side of piloting the, the, the draft disclosures. So right now we're working across many geographies and thematic areas um, using what we call an open innovation approach. So essentially we're testing out through our members um, these disclosures. I think some of the initial results suggest that Certainly, data availability is, is a key challenge, you know, and, and it requires some creativity and, and joint efforts to address. But but progress is being made, and I think results. Uh, so we're we're running these regular pilots as each um, round of, of the draft disclosures come out. Uh, we're we are actually compiling a recent piloting exercise, and this will be fed into the next beta release. And then the final TNFD recommendations are actually going to be uh, slated to be released uh, by September this year. I think the, the momentum around TNFD has also been encouraged by the ISSB's recent announcement that it will broaden its focus to include natural ecosystems. It is an important development. And so there's a relationship between the two of one sort of feeding into the, the bigger, wider body. Of course, over time, we would expect that they we do start to get this harmonization and, and essentially convergence. So, uh, but progress is being made. And to your last point, we're very pleased to be joining this consortium with IFC and ICMA to develop the, the Blue Bond guidance. And we expect to be in, in a preliminary fashion releasing that during the course of the year. So uh, certainly in dealing with ocean economies, it's a very important, and it's some would say a very, there are a lot of unknowns and I think as, as uh, the first step we say for most of our members, a little bit is buyer beware. You know, you need to understand what are some of the, the particularly environmental, but also social risks um, in dealing with this new area of the economy. And so at least we need to be having a better understanding before we go board. And that's really sort of part of the basis of this guidance is getting more clarity, understanding where exactly the risks lie and uh, looking forward to seeing uh, uh, more engagement in that space. Yeah, no, exactly that. And this is something that OnFIF started looking at last year and we will continue to look at um, this year as well. I think it's, a, it's an incredibly important uh, important thing. Do you have any final thoughts, any final takeaways for our listeners today, Eric? I mean, I think, you know, this year, as I mentioned earlier, certainly there are a lot of clouds on the horizon, I think more widely. And we have to acknowledge, you know, higher cost of capital does make capital intensive uh, investments challenging. I think on the positive side, these are no longer niche industries we're dealing with. I mentioned the, the case of electric vehicles in Germany, and there's so many cases today that nobody in any part of the private sector can ignore the changes that are afoot. And so, and, and the real question is, you know, who are, who are going to be the winners and the losers in, in the transitions in every industry, in every jurisdiction? So I guess I would call on your listeners, you know, this is a time to lean in, you know, become change makers rather than change takers. Through that, I think the current challenges, most of them are short term, whereas the sustainability transition is, is here to stay and it's here to grow. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a that's a really excellent point to uh to, to finish on. So thank you so much. Thank you for, for joining me today. Thank you to our listeners uh for listening as well. And you can subscribe to this and all our other podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. Thank you very much again, Eric. Thanks very much, Emma. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth Podcast.